Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Today's guest for the podcast is Gary Cosmer. He's the president and CEO of Love It, an iconic construction company out of Portland, Oregon. Gary joined Love It in 2018 with the goal to usher the company into its next era of growth with founder Dale Lovett. They are committed to providing the broader Pacific Northwest community with comprehensive construction services, both in the commercial and residential spaces. Some of the industry giants they work with are Nike and Intel. And one of the things that really caught my eye as I was going through this, Gary, was this quote that I actually found on the Love It LinkedIn. And it was so good, I just I couldn't say anything about it. I just need to read it. So here's the quote. Love It's uniqueness starts and ends with how we treat each other. Each of us strives towards a path of continual self-improvement with a focus on emotional intelligence. We aim to improve the quality of life for our team, our families, our customers, and our community at large. Our ability to find success as a business will be measured by the amount of effort we put forth to aid in the individual successes of our people. I, reading that, I could not imagine a better company to work with, work for, so on and so forth. So Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you very awesome. much. Awesome. Awesome to have you. You know, when we're doing the free interview, just I got so much while talking to you. So I'm excited to kind of share the uh, share with the world kind of who you are and what love it's about. So why don't we start? Get right into it. Tell us your background. Who are you and how'd you come to be with love it? Great. Well, I <clears throat> I grew up in in kind of a small business environment. My my family owned a small distribution company in the Midwest. And uh, I went to school in the Midwest and found myself out in the Northwest interviewing with Intel. And uh, I learned from that process that I really didn't like giant companies, but I love the Northwest. So moved out here and uh, decided to make this my home. And I've been out here since 1992. I've spent most of my career with publicly held companies and also in private equity, which is where I spent 16 years before joining Love It. I got into private equity through the sale or carve-out sale of a chunk of a publicly held company that I was working for and got offered the opportunity to kind of come along with that acquisition as the CEO and jumped in with both feet and made it happen. And since then was working with Uh, three or four different private equity firms, mostly managing their portfolio companies. The most recent before joining Love It was an aerospace and defense manufacturing company based here in Oregon. Uh, I got introduced to Dale and we really hit it off. We have amazing complementary skills and decided to join forces. And uh, I came on board as his partner here in 2018. So that is a long way to get into construction. That is probably the longest route you can get into construction. Yeah, yeah. Everything else you didn't do was, you know, construction based. Yeah, um, self-admittedly, I, I have very, very little construction experience. I didn't grow up in the trades. I am handy. I like working with my hands. I like working out in the shop. I'm an amateur racer and my degree is in industrial technology. So I have, I have a, a, a solid uh, technical background, but I didn't grow up and come in through the trades like most folks that end up in construction have. You must be a fan of Vegas because you like to do things the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> you were in PE for 16 years. You must have had a lot of experience that you kind of developed there. Just And so what kind of PE concepts, you know, from your time during working with PE, did you bring into Love It? That's a great question. I, I feel like most of what I learned, I learned some of what I feel you should do and some of what I feel you shouldn't do when, when running a company through my experience with PE. I, I believe that really the challenge is, is staying focused on where the true value of the company is. And, and I guess some examples that I would share with you would be around one of the portfolio companies that I had the opportunity to run was in the ATM machine business. 
And for years and years and years, the, the thought process was that the real value was in the equipment, the assets that were in the field. And it turns out that the real value, the real asset for that business was the field service team, the guys that were driving around servicing the equipment every day. And we really couldn't see the forest through the trees to see where that's where the actual value resides. And, and that's happened. I've had that epiphany a couple of times in my professional career. Probably the biggest example of that that I can think of on a, on a much larger scale would be Kmart Corporation. You know, towards, towards the end of the, the life of Kmart, they tried hiring multiple different CEOs. They had different chairmen that tried to bring back the blue light and introduce photography and photo printing and all these different concepts. And in the end, what really turned out to be the value of Kmart was the real estate. And nobody could see that until the very end. And it turns out that Kmart was pretty smart by buying all their real estate and placing it in areas that value just kept going up and up and up. And that's why at the end of the, at the, end of the game for Kmart, the, the value really was the real estate. So my experience from private equity is that make sure you understand the business, make sure that value is exploited to the greatest degree possible, and don't dilute that vision. Some uh, great insight. And especially talking about these, I mean, Kmart was no small company. So, you know, great insights. You know, you even have some experience in terms of M&A, I think, with Love It. What have you done? You know, what has been kind of learning lessons there? You know, you've, have you built any processes? What, is it, what does it look like for, for Love It? Yeah, that's a great question also. Along those lines of, you know, value, what we really look at with Love It is, is what is uh, two concepts that come from one of my favorite books, Good to Great. And one of those concepts is what's your flywheel? What is the core business that no matter what you protect and you keep that momentum rolling? And with ours, it's, it's our excavation, it's our plumbing, it's our directional drilling, it's our core business units. And then on top of that, the next layer I would say is, is another concept from the same book, which is called the hedgehog. And it's really just um, a concept of, of three overlapping circles. One of them is about what do you have a passion for? And the next one is what do you think you could be the best in the world at doing? And the third is what's your economic driver? How do you, how do you pay for all these things? And you look for areas where, where those three circles overlap. And the center of that is where we try and focus when we think about acquisition. So for example, well, we acquired another plumbing company last year. And that plumbing company doesn't just increase the mass of our flywheel, it also allows us to move into new construction, new commercial construction, because our, our core plumbing business here at Love It was, was really around commercial service and some project work with existing infrastructure and residential. We didn't really focus on new construction plumbing. So this allowed us to, to not only you know, stay focused on what our, our flywheel was, but also verticalize that, make that, that jump that is not so far out of the realm, it doesn't match the existing core business, but it allows us to expand. And uh, that's just one example that kind of I learned from, from PE. The other is do your due diligence. We are, are very rigid when it comes to our due diligence process. We initiate our, our, our contact with folks, we will almost immediately issue an NDA that is mutually agreeable. We'll do some very preliminary due diligence. I'll do a very preliminary evaluation at that time. And if we, if we can come to terms, we have some overlap in the terms, then we start working on more formal due diligence around the LOI that gets issued. And we've got a checklist. We use the exact same checklist for every business and, and uh, we try and use the same team with each business. And I think another key element that I've learned is that the due diligence team, the folks that are digging in, learning about the business, it's critically important that they are part of the onboarding process, that those folks work in the business as it's being onboarded into the portfolio. Otherwise, you lose so much good knowledge. You lose those relationships that get built. You just lose so much when you finish up the transaction and you're like, hey, okay, now we're going to hand it off to the integration team. And no matter how good you think you are, you miss just a ton of great opportunity by doing it that way and not having the same team that does due diligence integrate the business. 
sounds like you've got a little bit of experience that you're, I mean, everything that you're talking about sounds like there was good and as well as bad experiences. Usually we learn from the, from the bad ones. Was there a bad acquisition? And uh, yeah, actually our, our, I'd say my worst acquisition that I participated in was also the biggest one. It was back when we were in the ATM business and we acquired a, another ATM portfolio company with a large acquisition. It was about a $90 million transaction, if I remember correctly, over 20,000 assets in the field. And we outsourced most of our due diligence to a, an outside firm. And I feel like they did a good job on due diligence, but the handoff was just missing. That piece I just spoke about was missing. And I feel that ultimately that really impaired the quality of the transaction and then further impaired the value when it was all said and done. And I kind of made it a, a personal choice to never outsource the due diligence of an acquisition. If I don't feel that, that myself or my team is competent in being able to do due diligence for the acquisition, we're probably not ready for that acquisition. That's a great point. Some people try to put the wagon before the horse. And if you're not ready, don't try to force the circle you know, block into the square hole. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. And being the guppy that's well, the whale works sometimes, but not often. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. How do you build trust? Is this how you build trust or are there other pieces to it? Well, that's another favorite book of mine. I believe really in, in kind of the foundation elements and the philosophies behind the speed of trust. And the concept there is that, that trust is really built on two pillars. Those pillars are character and competence. And there's 13 trust behaviors that support those pillars. So really everything we do here, whether it's our, our, our annual review process, our peer review, our interaction with our customers, everything we do is built on that foundation of smart trust using those 13 trust behaviors. And the the ultimate concept is that the the best way to build trust with anybody is through competency. It's the fastest path to establishing trust. Now, character is important too, but that takes longer. You have to behave your way into building trust with somebody through character. You can instantly build trust with somebody through competency. So the the M&A process The first step really is to build trust through competency by showing and demonstrating that you know the process, that you're treating them fairly, that you're listening and sharing your results, what what your findings are with the seller at all times so that there's complete transparency. That almost instantly builds trust. And by the time you're halfway through due diligence, they also get a chance to understand your character because you spent more time together and now you have both elements completed in that that circle of trust it's a lot of experience you're spewing i love hearing about that and you know people are what make businesses right so if the trust isn't there then everything breaks and trust is a huge part of the construction industry right and it's also it's also a problem it's also a big problem within the industry so you know so trust in the competency is one thing but there's also another piece to transactions, you know, and that's the financial side. What about, you know, is there an experience, you know, did the PE experience that you had, did that bring anything or, or help you with, you know, your acquisitions with Lovett? I believe it did. I, I feel like the, the most important thing that I, I learned along the journey, and, and I've done nine or 10 transactions now, so I don't have a ton of experience, but I feel like I have enough to know to know better. So I always try, try and take a, a very dispassionate view to a transaction. So I don't get caught up in deal heat. I don't uh, get caught up in, in what my vision believes I could accomplish. I try and model everything. So during the course of the transaction, starting at the valuation, I look at EBITDA, I look at addbacks, I try and understand the business and that drives my initial value. And then the next thing I do is I build a budget for the business. It takes a lot of time. It's a big investment in in your time, but I build a budget for the business with my vision for how it will run starting day one after closing 12 months out. And I I try and make sure that that business can, can drive profitability. I try and make sure that it can 
service its debt if it's going to incur debt as a product of that transaction. I, I really make sure that I've got a good roadmap. And the best way to do that is to, I, I think, focus on the income statement, focus on the budget less than the balance sheet at that time. Okay. So a lot of transactions usually have, maybe you can't finance it yourself or you need help financing. Sometimes it's senior debt, but apparently you have some unique uh, ways that because of your experience that you're able to you know, bring to the table. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What, what does that look like? Sure. So part of establishing that trust during the due diligence process is trying to get a vision from the seller. Where do you see this business going? How do you feel it can perform? And once you, you get that feedback, that helps in two ways. It helps you model the business with your budgeting. So now I have that vision of what the business can perform, what the seller thinks it can do. And, and I try and always get contribution and, and investment from the seller. So I love it if, for example, there's some element that wants to stay behind and run the business. So for example, this plumbing company we bought, mom and dad decided they wanted to retire. Their son stayed on as the general manager is running that, that asset and he's doing a great job with it. During that process, I try and build the, the budget and part of the budget is how do we think the business is gonna perform from a revenue and from a profitability standpoint. And I try and tie that back into the purchase price of the business so that if the business performs how we both believe it will, they have a richer experience than if it were just a transaction that was just a, a standardized transaction with a closing and if would be finalized on closing day. I try and structure an earnout for the seller so that if the business performs, let's say within 70% of where they believe it will and where we modeled it together, they get about what their asking price is. And if it performs beyond that, they earn more than their asking price so that their skin in the game to make sure that the business has a successful transition, their skin in the game to make sure that they're not overselling what they believe the vision or the, the performance of the business can be. And it helps mitigate our risk to make sure that we are not, our expectations are not beyond what the business can perform. I'll give you another example. We're, we're looking at another acquisition that is a, a company in the HVAC space. And that company had pretty steady state growth for 18, 19, 20. And 2021 was an enormous year for them, exceptional year, great profitability, great revenue. And that drove the value of the business up. We revalued it when we got the financials. But that one year creates risk for us, right? We don't know whether it's going to continue to perform that way or whether it's going to perform as some blend between previous performance. It's impossible to tell. So we want to make sure that we value it where is appropriate with given the new performance of the business. But we also want to make sure that we reduce our risk in case it doesn't perform that way next year after the acquisition. So in that case, I'd probably go a little bit heavier on the earnout of the business to reduce our risk and increase the upside. The alternative to that would be to just dilute the value of the most current year, which I don't think is fair to the seller if they truly are on a, on a ramp trajectory. So um, that's a way to, that I believe makes it fair for both parties. That really puts you and the seller on the same side of the table, right? You know, when we talk about trust and, and, and how you make a deal, you know, the right way, those tactics essentially are are making that happen that makes trust so obvious at that point <laughs> i think every transaction needs some degree of overlap if you, if you have to really drive a wedge in place to to create overlap artificially the transaction's doomed from the beginning so i just look for any overlap and then i determine how do i exploit that overlap the best way possible for both parties so when you say overlap just to be clear, are you saying overlap and same like customer base? No, no. Um, it's more of a conceptual con. It's more conceptual for me, meaning that um, you've got kind of your space where where you've got your seller here and you got your buyer here, and there has to be some point where those two overlap, and it can be like a perfect transaction where they just sit on top of each other, or you could have just this teeny tiny bit of overlap that you then have to really work to make sure that you you exploit to the fullest for both parties so that it can be a successful transaction. Okay, so that's what you mean by overlap is 
that both parties are getting negotiating their needs and the, those two circles are combined and the, and making it a bigger overlap or making the future of that overlap bigger. So might not be right now, but if we're on the same page, risk and reward is taken care of on both sides, right? So yeah, the, that, the sum of the consolidated entity, like both part, both organizations put together, the sum of that should yield greater results than either one operating independently. Okay. That totally makes sense. So in our pre-interview, I think this is relevant because this is, you know, talking about the money side here, sometimes as a seller, sometimes as a buyer, how does one find a PE firm or a family fund? And could you describe what the difference is between the two? Sure. I guess uh, I'll start by describing the differences between the two types of funds. So as you said, there's two types. There's family fund and, and uh, subscription-based equity fund. A subscription-based equity fund, they will reach out to high net worth individuals to subscribe to a portfolio. So they may say, okay, we're building a portfolio of construction companies and we'd like you to subscribe to that portfolio. The horizon is five to seven years, we think it will yield X percent return on the investment. And the high net worth individuals say, yeah, that looks interesting. Or they say, well, why are you focusing on that? And they say, well, we've, we've done industry research and we think construction is gonna be booming for the next foreseeable future. And that's where we wanna focus our efforts. We think it's the greatest return for our investment. So then in five to seven years, that portfolio is typically sold. And the, the profits are shared by the subscription holders. Now, a family fund is different. A family fund is typically one high net worth individual or, or generational high net worth individuals that are tied to the same family, where they are investing their money in building a portfolio of companies. And they can be doing it for multiple reasons. Some of them build it as a strategy for, for giving, where instead of just providing donations to whatever their favorite charity is, they will set up a fund that the profit from their portfolio companies creates annuitized long-term charitable donations for those companies. So instead of giving once, now they've created a stream of value for their charity that goes on and on in perpetuity. And they can be doing it to build family wealth and they are just not allowing other subscribers as part of that party. But family funds typically don't have that hard cutoff. They don't. They don't have a portfolio term like a, a sub, like a subscription-based fund would. They are typically long-haul players. They take a longer view. My experience is that they are less aggressive in chasing profitability and EBITDA for the companies, and they're more about building out the organizations for long-term growth and long-term reward. Second part of that question was, how do you find them? And sometimes they find you. If you are operating in an industry that they have interest, you may get an unsolicited call from, from an analyst. They normally have their analysts call first. That's one way you find them. Another great way is through your existing professional relationships. So it could come through networking through an organization like EO or YPO or, or any of those types of organizations. It could come through your service partners like your banking partner or your attorney uh, your your accounting firm those are all great ways to learn not only about opportunities for funding or private equity partners they're also the best way i've found to learn about acquisition targets so did you keep industry contacts or do you have any recommendations you know for someone that's let's say new in the construction space and you know how you know you said ypo and all that but for someone that's starting out, that might not be exactly an option for them. And networking events, they don't necessarily go around to all those networking events, right? Those type of people. I'm, so. I'm actually not a big fan of networking events, but I'm a big fan of networking. I keep a spreadsheet of my contacts that are my network. You know, I obviously, friends and family don't, don't count, but I have industry contacts that I, I think are are relationships that are beyond just acquaintances that I try and maintain contact with. And when I first meet or when I'm introduced to somebody new, I try and make sure I'm adding as much value to that, that networking as they are. So I'm not just milking them for contacts or mining information from them. I want to make sure that I can provide something for them also. I always ask for introductions as part of my networking. So if I'm introduced to somebody that's new, I'll ask for them to 
introduce me to two folks that they think I might be able to help or maybe able to help me and so on and so forth. And I keep all of that in a spreadsheet. And then I conditionally format that spreadsheet so that if I've gone more than 90 days in talking with any of those contacts, it turns red. And I know I need to send them an email or drop them a line on LinkedIn. And, and uh, I still have contacts from aerospace and defense manufacturing folks that cannot, like, there's no real overlap with construction, but I still maintain contacts with them. And uh, it doesn't take that long to do once you've got it set up. And it, it's really important. Gary, I need to stop, yeah. I need to stop you because, so we went through obviously multiple calls of you prior to the podcast. This is totally new knowledge to us. And we are both like <laughs> sitting here like, oh my God, that's so smart. Like, how, I, I, Gary, you're really, really smart. And I don't know if people tell you that often, but you are absolutely are. Um, well, I appreciate also, the kind words. <laughs> also, yeah. I, I think that people should take note of that aspect, just Excel, conditional formatting, boom, here's my relationship management, uh, you know, networking piece. But then on top of that, the real answer to how do you find a, you know, a PE firm is talk to Gary. Like <laughs> that might be just it. <laughs> I will say that, that that's a double-edged sword, right? PE is not for everybody. And you have to know that when you jump in with a, a PE partner, it's not a friend. They're not a family member. They aren't a bank. They, they are folks that are interested in getting a return on their investment. That return can oftentimes be in direct conflict with your culture. So if your culture is about building people, making sure your team has strong succession planning, making sure there's growth and, and high investment and in training in your culture, oftentimes private equity firms don't see any value in that. And that's one of the first, first things they'll try and strip out to try and increase the profitability of the company. And this happens more often with subscription-based equity firms. My recommendation is do not take private equity unless you need it. And if you do take it, make sure you fully understand who you're getting in bed with. You know, talk to their portfolio company managers. Talk to people that have sold to them. Talk to folks that are are deep in their organization so you get a true understanding of how they operate. I've worked for three or four, four or five private equity firms and I've had good experiences and bad experiences. And I really cannot emphasize enough, make sure that fully understand who you're getting in bed with before you decide you're going to take private equity. Okay. Good advice. We will definitely take note of that. Okay. We could talk about PE and your experience around PE up to the nth degree. You, while during our pre-interview, there were some other really unique things that you brought to the table that I think you need to really talk about. I think the world needs to understand just how crazy and unique of an idea that this is that you've done. And I think that's where, you know, there's definitely a piece of success that comes from. And it's your manufacturing experience and love it. Can you tell us about what, you know, that combination, you kind of give us your backstory and then what prompted you into implementing your experience into Love It and what was it that you actually implemented? Sure, sure. So maybe just taking a brief step back. When 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 I had the opportunity to get into to manufacturing as a portfolio company manager, I started doing my research. Part of that research in manufacturing kind of is is the history. So many people already know what's kind of taken place in the United States regarding manufacturing, but it kind of goes like this, you know, we, we were killer at manufacturing in the sixties and seventies. And then in the eighties, we started to offshore some of our manufacturing primarily because labor cost was going up and we had inflation. I and mean, there's a lot of drivers, but the primary driver was, was labor cost during the eighties and early nineties more and more offshoring took place. And, and we offshored to Japan, we offshored to China, we offshored to India, we offshored to Mexico, most recently South America, and we lost some skills in the United States. And then we started figuring out the late 90s, early 2000s, that we better start bringing some of this back because now we got kids that, that don't have technical ability, they're going, they're coming out of school, that we're, we're down on engineers, we're we lost the ability to manufacture some complex components here. 
And uh, we started thinking about how do we bring manufacturing back onto our soil? And the challenge was, well, somebody that's offshore is making a lot less than an American worker is making. And there's no way we're going to get an American worker to work, nor could we get them to work for what the labor rates are offshore. So we better figure out how to bridge that gap with labor costs being higher. So we started exploring ways to do that. And that really came through things like lean manufacturing and the Toyota system and some of the manufacturing concepts that were around building efficiency in the manufacturing. And when we started using those techniques here, we were able to bring manufacturing back on shore, provide high quality at a higher labor cost, but still maintain an acceptable margin because we were operating so much more efficiently by using things like the Toyota system and the manufacturing. So that's kind of how we did it. And, and we've been really successful in doing that since the, the mid late nineties, it's getting better and better. We're doing it more and more here and we're seeing it start to overlap more industries. Kind of the epiphany moment for me was when you look at service industries like plumbing or excavation or horizontal directional drilling or really any of the industries that we serve at Love It, there was no catalyzing event to help them get more efficient, right? So the example that I use is nobody ever outsourced their water heater installation to China or India or Mexico. It's preposterous to think about that. It just wouldn't work, right? Because that event never happened, the outsourcing never occurred, there was never a catalyzing event to say, we have to bring it back. We better get smart. So the epiphany that I had was, well, if we can apply the same concepts that we use to bring manufacturing back to US soil through building efficiency, through concepts like the Toyota system or lean, if we can apply those to the industries we serve like plumbing or excavation or drain cleaning, then we should be able to go to market at a lower price, commanding a higher margin with a better product. And that should let us clown on our competition in a way that nobody else is really thinking about doing it in the industries we serve. And that's probably what excited me more than anything else about partnering in, in with Dale at Love It is like using that concept, making it a big test in a, in a big experiment. And so far, we've been, we've been having some pretty good luck with it. That's awesome. Can you give us a little bit of like, some issues that you've solved, some easy ones that you've solved. Uh, I know you said something about inventory and maybe explain what it is that you actually. Yeah, I mean, Kanban inventory is, is probably the, the easiest thing to implement. My first week on the job, I was just traveling around to different job sites. And I, I was at a job site where we were doing an excavation job and I was looking around for the foreman and I couldn't find the foreman. And I finally asked one of the guys where he was and they said, well, he's out getting batteries. The batteries in the laser went out. Well, where did he go to get batteries? I don't know. How long has he been gone? He's been gone about an hour. What are you guys doing? We're waiting for him to get back. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> oh man, how much money are we burning here? Why this guy goes to get batteries? So uh, I come back and I said, well, you know, do you keep spare batteries? He's like, yeah, I normally keep a spare set in the truck. I'm like, well, where was the spare set? He's like, well, we used them a couple of weeks ago, but I forgot to get replacements for my spare set. So that really was the the inspiration for starting with inventory and and what we what we were able to implement very quickly was just some very basic kanban inventory where now each bay each one of our bays for each of our business units has two bins with inventory in it there's a kanban card behind the first bin so that if they use materials to the point where they see the card they drop the card in a little mailbox they go off do their work in the morning and by the time they use the inventory in the second bin behind it, the first bin has been replenished. And we have one of our folks here in the office just goes around twice a day and they check the mailboxes and they order replenishment materials. And that, that helps us in multiple ways. It helps us because now I don't have my foreman running out to get batteries and everybody waiting for them. We can order in more economic quantities. We can order, you know, instead of buying an eight pack of batteries for 16 bucks at Home Depot, we can buy... I don't know, 60 of those batteries from Amazon for a quarter of that price. That just allows us to be more efficient with our purchasing. We do it for all of our supplies. We've, we've rolled that out to all of our trucks now also so that within the actual trucks, if they get to the 
second to last can of marking paint, there's a Kanban card there. And when they get back in the office that night, they drop that card in the mailbox and it's got their truck number and the, the drawer number and shelf number in their truck so that that gets replenished. That works really well. It's super simple and it reduces our cost of inventory and it makes us operate more efficiently. There's wow. also a, I guess a follow-on to that is 5S, which I recommend doing as part of that activity where 5S is a, is a really important component for many reasons. It's around the first element of 5S. The first S is called sort. And that's really going through your shop, going through your vehicles and making sure that stuff you haven't used in 10 years gets thrown out. A lot of folks are nervous about doing that, particularly in this industry. Like, hey, well, we use that on this job back such and such, and we can't throw that out. Well, okay, well, let's, let's create what's called a red tag area, which is just a big box in the warehouse on the floor. And let's put it in the red tag area. If we don't use it in a year in the red tag area, is it okay to throw it away then? Like, yeah, yeah, that works. That's kind of how we buffered the, the response is, oh, you can't throw that away. That's important junk. So now, now when we have disagreements about whether that junk's important or whether it's junk, we put it in the red tag area and see what happens. Now, every once in a while, we throw something away that we shouldn't have, but it doesn't happen. The second component to 5S is, is set in order. And that's finding a place for everything and making sure everything's in its place. And that's really important because take our excavation vehicles, for example, they're F-550s and they get utility beds on them and they've got cabinets on those utility beds. And every one of those beds now is standardized. There's a, a list of which tools are in which one. And the most important one is the first aid kit. It's, it's really important that you can imagine if, if you were a fireman and your fire truck didn't have 5S, meaning every time you went on a call, you put stuff back in different places. And now you get to the scene and you've got an accident and you run to the accident and all of a sudden you determine you need a defibrillator or you need a compression bandage and you run to the truck and now you're rifling through the cabinets and trying to figure out where you put those last, last time you're there. You could have somebody that could get seriously injured or die because you didn't know where something was. And really the same thing applies to our vehicles. Like if I've got three excavation trucks that are on a job site and somebody gets hurt, I want the foreman or the laborer to be able to run to any one of those trucks and know that no matter which truck he goes to, if he opens the first cabinet behind the driver's cab, there's always going to be a fire extinguisher in there. There's always going to be a first aid kit. It doesn't matter whose truck he's at. All that stuff is, it, it builds efficiency also while they're working, but it's a safety issue for me also. I need to 5S my house. I think that, <laughs> that you, you got me thinking. My dad is a Chicago a firefighter uh, engineer. And uh, so the truck is, you know, a big piece of his responsibility. So he's been 5Sing for a long time now. Now I, I got to yell at him for not teaching me these skills. Yeah, I think first responders have been doing 5S long before manufacturing started doing it. They just didn't market it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So the next S is shine. And that's just making sure that once you institutionalize this behavior, it stays institutionalized. Standardized is making sure that it, it flows out through the whole organization. So just because you do it on the trucks doesn't mean you shouldn't do it for the bathroom supplies or your coffee filters or whatever. It adds efficiency wherever you do it. And sustain is the last S in 5S. And that is really about making sure that things stick. And that's about audits and, and just checking up and making sure that you, you continue to do it the same way. And quarterly, Quarterly audits are really important because life gets in the way. You know, you have a whirlwind of activity every day, especially if you're in an emergency response business. And sometimes things don't get put back the way they should or put back where they should. And it's nobody's fault. It just was a whirlwind of activity. And this is a way to check and make sure that that institutionalized behavior stays in place. Boy, you gave uh, some amazing nuggets that I think could be really implemented with anyone that has any type of inventory, construction, AC. I mean, I think this goes across anyone that has any type of assets that, you know, tools or otherwise, and, you know, they're going out in trucks or anything like that, servicing, standardizing like that. That sounds amazing. Those, those are some great nuggets, Scary. So thank you for that. There's all these amazing things in business. Sometimes there's learning lessons. Sometimes there's things that are not so good, but you can learn from them, right? So you had said that you're not growing as fast as you thought right? You, obviously, you've got all this amazing knowledge, all these amazing people, but you're not growing as fast as you thought. Why? What, what, what's going on? 
there's probably multiple things that drive this, but the one that seems to stand out for me in this industry that I don't really notice in other industries that I've been able to participate in is the growth for employees. So what I mean by that is, is we got lots of great people here, but what I see is in this industry, and I, and I have colleagues that are also in the construction and construction services, and they see the same thing, and they've kind of validated that, that, that if we were in manufacturing, for example, and I had somebody that's a foreman or superintendent in manufacturing, or what would be the equivalent of a foreman or superintendent in manufacturing, that person started on the line, they went through uh, pretty intense training from the corporation, then they were at some point promoted, they went through management training, they have metrics that they had to follow on the plant floor, They grew with the business, they were educated in P&L, time management, all these things that they had to really master to achieve the next level in their career, which would have been a shop supervisor. And then if they became a plant manager, they had a whole, a whole new bucket of things they had to learn. And the company invested in making sure they were trained in those, the mechanics of running that job, the management activities every day. And what I find is, there's often less natural leadership ability in those industries, but more hard management skills in those industries. In construction, it's the opposite. My experience is that it's the opposite. You've got a laborer that worked really hard and one day his foreman quit or his foreman didn't show up and he got an opportunity to be foreman that day and he did a good job. So then they made him a foreman and they didn't really teach him about the management skills to be a foreman. He just had natural leadership and the guys liked him and he could get jobs done. So they made him a foreman. And then same thing happened when his superintendent left. So now they made him a superintendent and he doesn't really know what the difference is other than he makes more money and his title's different, but he has the same skills he had when he was a laborer. And, you know, then he ends up as project manager and then he ends up as a field director. And then, you know, he just keeps getting moved up through the ranks because he has great natural leadership skills. But he doesn't know how to, he doesn't know his way around a PL. He doesn't know what what the difference between indirect and direct costs are. He doesn't know what should be down in SDNA or be up in COGS. He doesn't have the ability to create metrics, lead measures, lag measures. He doesn't understand any of that stuff because nobody invested any time with him. He's super smart. He's got great natural leadership ability, but he doesn't have any of that. And my experience is that that is not a quick process. That process can take a couple of years to bring somebody up to speed. You don't demote them back down to where they should be. You invest in them to get them to perform at a level that they're currently at and what your expectations would be for that position. So that's hard. Here, I've found that I've had to take more time to do that than I probably have in any of the other industries I've served. Brass tax, right? If you were to define couple sentences, the difference between leadership skills and management skills. Mm. What's the difference? Well, first of all, somebody that has great leadership skills can get people to do things a great manager could never get them to do. So leadership skills are critically important and you can't train for it. They either have it or they don't. Management skills are required for institutionalization, for, for getting processes to continue to run in a efficient manner. So a natural leader is great with emergencies. They can direct people. Folks follow them into disasters. They do amazing things. But if you don't also have great management skills, then when that person leaves, everybody stands around looking at each other. You have uh, uh, another, another concept, I think from good to great, is a concept called a genius with a thousand helpers. And uh, that concept is very applicable when you have somebody that's an amazing natural leader, but doesn't invest in training his folks how to be good managers. So the mechanics, the brass tacks, as you say, are not just leading your team, it's putting metrics in place to measure whether you're getting better or worse. It's figuring out how to have a succession plan so that when you promote somebody, the next person in line doesn't have to start from scratch. It's making sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that the same thing gets done the same way every time with critical process. And that those are all management skills. Those are all hard skills and they can be taught. It's just a matter of making that investment in folks and holding them accountable to them once they know what they should do. Really strong leaders, tend to push back initially when you try and build out their management skills. They don't see high value in that. 
holding them accountable to both leveraging their natural leadership skills and holding them accountable to being good managers is really important to a well-rounded leader and somebody that can scale. That is a great explanation for the difference between leadership and management. So thank you for that. We actually just talked about this in our annual meeting of leadership compared to management and where where things uh, sit for our organization. So it is, hits very close to home uh, based on two weeks ago when we had our meeting. That's great to hear. Do you have, you know, last piece that I want to talk about, what does your M&A growth strategy look like? We talked about it briefly. What are you looking for? And what's your past look like? Good question. So M&A is a portion of our growth strategy is probably a better way for me to look at it and explain it. We, we have a revenue goal of $100 million uh, in top line revenue. We're going to finish this year about a quarter of the way there on that goal. We'd like to be at $100 million. In order to achieve that goal mathematically, we can't get there just from organic growth. We can grow at 10 or 15% a year through organic growth, but that doesn't get us where we need to be. So we need to augment that growth. And the two areas that we're augmenting that growth are in geography, where we can take that, that person I just talked about that has natural leadership skills that we've invested in, in training, and we can transplant them to geographies that we currently don't serve and be up and running in those geographies as a force multiplier. And that's one part of our growth strategy. And then the second part is inorganic growth through acquisition, where we're looking for other organizations that are either already part of our flywheel or can be verticals that allow us to connect our flywheel to them. So for example, we, we are not currently in the HVAC business or landscaping business, or those, those two businesses are, would be natural for us to add on because we already serve multifamily providers where if you're already providing service for a condominium complex for plumbing and for excavation and mitigation and restoration, being able to add landscaping or, or HVAC onto that or mechanicals in any, any stand, from any stance would, be, would just be a natural for them to be able to have a one-stop shop. So that's what I mean by verticals for our existing flywheel. Well, and what about past acquisitions? You had talked about uh, a little bit about them, but your two past acquisitions in the past three years, flywheel versus hedgehog. Were they mostly yeah, so, flywheels? So one of them was the plumbing company I mentioned, and why it wasn't a direct flywheel component because we we weren't doing new construction. We thought it was a, a just a natural complementary business to bolt on, and it also generates business for that that company generates additional business for our business units here. So for example, they that plumbing company we bought doesn't have a drain division, so. They have need for drain cleaning, so now they offload that to our, our drain cleaning group here. And directional drilling, excavation, same story. Mitigation, same story. So that was a great feeder business to be able to drive additional business for our existing business units. The acquisition before that was a company that did um, mitigation and restoration, so primarily fire and water damage. We saw that as, as very complimentary because well, when you have water damage, most of the time it happened because a pipe broke or something like that happened. So they did not have a plumbing partner, and that was a natural feeder to support our plumbing business. That mitigation call that turned into them going in and, and mitigating the damage turned into an opportunity for our, our plumbing department, maybe our drain department, maybe excavation, depending on what the need was. And then it also works the other way, where oftentimes when we have a plumbing job that we do, We've got, a, we've got a damaged drywall, pull down a ceiling, cut open a floor, do whatever to make that repair. And now we have access to the restoration group of that acquisition to be able to come in and restore the drywall, resurface the ceiling, retexture, put the flooring in. Whereas before we would be at the mercy of a, of a sub and they're very busy right now. So this allows us to have more control over the whole job that we do. That's amazing. That's, those are some, some great ideologies and philosophies around, you know, adding to the flywheel. So thank you for that. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, sure. 
Gary, is there anything that you want to add here at the end as, as we, you know, bid you adieu for today? Is there anything that you want to tell people to know? Do you want to promote something? What, what it is free reign, just, you know, shoot from the heart. Well, I, I, I'd say be patient. You know, my, my partner has to remind me all the time that, that we're three years into a five-year process when they start to get frustrated or, or get impatient. And folks will push back initially when you try and incorporate some of these concepts and don't let it get you down. Keep your head up and stay the course. And I guarantee that you will have positive results from doing some of this stuff. I've got, I think when I talked to you guys before, I, I mentioned a couple of books and I, I have them here. These, I recommend these books to anybody that is is interested. And first one is Good to Great. We talked about quite a bit. That talks about the flywheel concept and the, the hedgehog concept. And the, the next one's a book called The the Advantage. And, With Patrick uh, Lencioni. He's an amazing oh, yeah. author. And the thing that I really got from that book was the idea of being vulnerable in the workplace. And that's another interesting artifact of the construction business. People are not comfortable being vulnerable with each other in construction. And this helps kind of break that, that mold. And when you can be vulnerable, it's much easier to establish trust with each other. So the next one down is the speed of trust. And that, that you know, really emphasizes that concept of the character and competence and 13 trust behaviors. And then the next one down is called the four disciplines of execution. And those four disciplines are focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability. And they really talk about like establishing metrics, building scoreboards, being able to, to know whether you're getting better or worse. And the, the last one is the Toyota Kata. And that, that's the one that really teaches the concepts around lean manufacturing and explains in, in very, very simple detail how to implement some of the those concepts in your organization effectively. That's what I'd leave you with. I don't I don't have any kind of I don't get any kind of loyalty from any of those, but I've had good results with them. That's awesome. Thank you, Gary. And if people want to get in contact with you, how should they do that? Probably the best way to reach me would be through my LinkedIn contact. I keep a close eye on it and I'll respond pretty quickly. All right. We will make sure we drop that in as well as all the Love It social media accounts into the show notes. You've been fabulous, Gary, as every time we've talked to you. So thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. I enjoyed meeting with you. Thanks, Thanks, Gary. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If this episode did help you, then be sure to share it with someone else who needs to hear it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or looking for additional help on your journey to find more wealth, scale, and freedom in your AEC company, visit our AEC resources page at spotmigration.com backslash AEC hyphen resources. resources.